Hello and welcome to the NTWC Livecast and the Hurricane Center podcast, made possible by USAA, the South Pottery Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, the Weather Company, the Weather Boy, and Walmart. This program is a team effort between Bill Reed, Tim Smith, Dr. Hal Needham, and Mark Sutter and myself. Today, Tim Smith has the day off. So, here's Bill Reed. I'd like to welcome uh uh, Stephanie uh, Murphy, who's Vice President of Preparedness, Resiliency, and Emergency Management at a company called Tidal Basin. Uh, she has over 18 years of experience in the uh, uh, emergency management and all aspects of, of uh, resiliency and whatnot for public infrastructure and also uh, does work in the, in the private sector. Uh, infrastructure, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that. She also spent a little over a year with uh, National Planning Section Chief with FEMA on federally declared disasters and, and and wisely chose a year where there wasn't a whole lot of hurricane landfalls. So, Stephanie, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. It is fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, uh, my pleasure. Uh, so, uh, what is it that uh, your company actually does in the, in the realm of emergency management, just to give us a flavor of it? Absolutely. So Tidal Basin is a, a comprehensive emergency management organization company, and we work with clients all over the country and also the world um, doing emergency management, comprehensive emergency management, and providing a total solution for clients who hire us. Um, and that involves preparedness, it, in, it involves response, it involves mitigation activities. So how do we get better after the disasters? It also involves recovery. Um, we also do community development, uh, construction, we do case management, uh, we help with uh, compliance with federal grants. So we really have the opportunity as an organization to work with a team of people as trusted advisors for them um, to help them really tip to tail of any sort of disaster and emergency. And so what I focus on as the vice president is specifically preparedness. So prior to any of these disasters that were, you know, we all participate in, um, as well as the response aspect. So my team will go out and actually sit side by side with many of our clients in their emergency operations centers or out in the field to help them respond to a lot of these really, really awful disasters. Interesting. Uh, uh, I'm sure you followed uh, uh, Hurricane Maria five years ago when it devastated the infrastructure of Puerto Rico. And it, yeah. most of us, that, that was not a big surprise. That was the upper end of the charts hurricane, even for Puerto Rico. So if the same storm had hit here, we would have had similar uh, uh, challenges to the infrastructure. But then the, 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 a lot of money was poured into making the electric system uh uh, supposedly better and then we had uh, uh, Fiona come through this year uh, 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 I hate to say a lesser hurricane but the winds weren't as strong in, in Fiona and again we seem to have had a major uh, failure of the of the power system there uh, do you have any thoughts on what what we can do to keep repeating the same uh, story when we have a storm hit from the infrastructure you know, when it when it comes to infrastructure, one of the toughest things is to try to predict where we're going to see a failure, right? Because um, I've had instances, even as an emergency manager in the field, where my entire grid or my entire infrastructure seems tight, seems perfect, and then a squirrel gets into the transformer and blows something. 
or we have data uh, encoding that is in some back end piece of our computers that is written long or has some sort of corruption to it. So I think we're, we're going to always tell similar stories because what these disasters tend to do is find the link, the weakest link. But what we can do is just constantly learn, right? We always want to make sure that we're taking what those disasters are and learning, conducting what we call after action reports. Um, but really it's a, it's a rundown of what, what, what went well, what can we do better? Where can we mitigate the issues we experience? And are there things that we can sort of look at to say, this failure didn't happen this time. However, we're now seeing that this could be a weak area. How do we strengthen? How do we mitigate? How do we bring in funding to shore up those things? Um, and I know Puerto Rico has, has done a lot of work um, since Maria to try to get those things. But again, we're on an island, right? Um, we're subject to uh, the the soil if there's trees that are not going to be as stable because I can have trees in my own yard, right? That can be standing for a very long time. And then one storm, one saturation, the tree falls. Um, so I know that there, there are a lot of things like that that have been happening. Um, I think the story to be told differently is how do we get better each and every time and how do we learn even if we still have failures, because we're always going to have something that gets affected. But I think the better story to tell is, where did we have successes that we learned from the last time that demonstrated we improved in certain areas? I think that's where we really want to encourage, right? We, we really want to make sure that we're, we're building our teams up and building our communities up to say, we did do things right. Yes, we have these failures. Yes, there are areas we can get better in. but as a community, we have to be doing something right. And so let's talk about that and let's celebrate that. Yeah, and it, it, I always found it useful to really read about someone else's problems and say, what could happen here that's related to that? And uh, uh, one of the things I learned going around the Caribbean was that a lot of the islands there, in advance of the strong winds of a hurricane, turn off the power. Mm. It, pre it preserves the main function of your grid so that when you bring it back, you you fix the local problems you got there, but you're not having to rebuild the entire system. Have, have you got experience with uh, anybody doing that? Um, you know, I know obviously in California, they'll do the rolling brownouts or blackouts for certain things, um, especially when we have high winds or the wildfires, things like that. Um, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis, right? It depends on the location. It depends on your ability. It depends what type of utility you have. Um, if it's a co-op, if it's private, if it's publicly run, um, I think there's a lot of different kinds of solutions. Um, but you brought up a really good point that even though a disaster may not happen to me, my community, my location, I can still take that and learn from it. And, and when I was at the airports authority up in Washington, D.C., um, with our airports there, we did that all the time. We learned from other airports disasters that they had, and we um, crosswalked it against our own preparedness, our own plans, our own um, relationships that we have with people, right? Who is sitting in the operations centers with us? Who is at the table planning and training and exercising with us? Who are those partners and stakeholders? And do we need to include people that we saw during this disaster 
wasn't there with this other location. Um, so I think learning from other people's successes and their lessons learned, I think is a huge, huge, huge part of what we should all be doing when it comes to preparedness, especially with hurricanes, because those are the most frequent for a broad band of the country um, that we see it often on, on the West Coast, on the East Coast, right? We have things that can affect all of us. And I think that's the easiest way to learn from it. Yeah, and, and sometimes even though it's not the same kind of disaster, some of the 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 mechanics, how you operate, how you manage it, that there those are kind of uh, standards that you can do that uh, on on that. We got a lot of uh, broadcast meteorologists that follow the show. What what would you like them to know about uh, communicating with emergency management during the preparedness aspect of a, of uh, of their job? Yeah, you know, make sure you know who your emergency managers are. You are an integral part of that communication hierarchy. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that we can do as emergency managers is partner with the experts. Uh, a lot of us in emergency management um, call ourselves, you know, the Jack or Jill of of, uh, of many things, but master of none. We have a lot of knowledge, uh, maybe about an inch deep. Um, but we really have to pull in a lot of people who have the knowledge base. And so your listeners, one of one of the calls to action that I would love for them to do is get to know who their local emergency manager is if they don't, um, understand who their regional emergency managers are or those partnerships, the, the local emergency preparedness councils that are out there, um, even who their state people are when it comes to emergency management, because there is a lot of information that can be provided. And whereas a lot of folks might be in larger cities, we have a lot of rural locations that it's one person or it's an, it's an other duty as assigned. Emergency management is an other duty as assigned for someone, whether they're in fire, law enforcement, county administration. Um, and so bringing in people who have a very good understanding about providing data and providing information so that we or the leadership can make informed decisions, I think is huge. And so part of that is asking to sit at the table when there's planning efforts to make emergency plans, to, to be a part of training or offer training. Give training to people to give them some basic knowledge about terminology, about how you'll communicate information, why it's important to understand the different watches versus warnings, or um, when you look at different uh, data that's coming out of the centers, what does it all mean? And participate in exercises. I can't tell you how often we, we don't talk about or exercise the ability to either do press briefings or media briefings, or get information from people in real time that would be a, a broadcast. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important for um, your listeners to try to get involved in that because it can be a lot of fun during an exercise um, and offer up the ability to say, hey, I can do a broadcast or I can be your meteorologist. I can be that so you can practice and understand what it would be like to get that information and make decisions in real time. That's why we exercise. So that's one of the biggest things I would say um, is, is to be able to do that so you become a natural part of that communication hierarchy with leadership. Very good point. The, uh, the, the, the most common complaint I used to get from the general public who were interested is that I was talking a different language. Your jargon is full of acronyms yeah. and stuff. So it's uh, it, it'd probably be useful to have that 
interface between your end user and the emergency management people to realize, hey, they don't know what I'm talking about. This is our day day to day job. They only deal with this when there's emergency. You're not going to know it. So you got to spell yeah. it out. <laughs> You do. And, you know, one of the other really good points I dealt with this when I was in Washington, D.C., when we had winter weather events is we also dealt with complacency with the public. Right. And we can get that with hurricanes um, because sometimes they can be so frequent. And I know uh, you and your listeners probably get this right. You you say the same thing often enough. People stop listening or they've sat through hurricanes and it didn't harm them or hurt them before. So this one is less and it'll be fine, right? So I think the other active thing that the listeners can participate in is how do we keep a constant refresh? How do we make sure we're getting information out in novel ways, in new ways, um, in ways that the public can understand? And it's not just our residents, it's visitors. It's people who have disabilities. It's others with access or functional needs. How do we make sure on a regular basis and consistent basis, we're fighting against complacency? Not only are we helping people understand the messaging, but we're fighting against their ability to say, eh, I've been through it. I'm fine. Because mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of things that they need to know and need to understand. And we want to make sure the broadest audience is getting it and that they can take action to keep themselves safe and keep the community safe. Yeah, I, I actually use a different term for that, but it's the same the, the concept. I call it denial. The, the <laughs> a, lot of, yeah. a lot of people are, yeah, I know there's a hurricane out there, but it's not going to happen to me. Kind right. of. I, I know there's a pandemic out there, but it's not going to happen to me. Thank mm-hmm. you. you can call it either one, complacency or denial, but uh, I, I, I have to admit, I, I fall, everybody falls into that. I, there's plenty of things I fall into denial about, so... It's a it's a constant battle. Uh, Hal, it looks like you may be in a position to ask some questions. I am. This is a great conversation so far. Stephanie, I have a question. You talked about learning from the past and improving things over time. So the thing with hurricane climatology, we see a lot of clustering. So unfortunately, our friends in South Louisiana have just been getting pounded over the last decade, right? Whereas our friends in coastal Georgia, they've seen the periphery of some hurricanes, but they haven't had a direct hit in a long time. Do you see in general maybe a difference in preparedness from places that are getting hit again and again and again, that maybe they're working together, they're building relationships, they're learning from mistakes compared to a place that hasn't been hit in a long time? Yes. I mean, the bottom line is yes. There are varying levels of preparedness when it comes to communities that have experienced disasters, um, specifically hurricanes, right? Um, because we, and and if they experience different kinds of hurricane impacts or the center, the edge, because if you're constantly dealing with a wind event because of the hurricane, that's going to be very different preparedness than if you're dealing with the rain and flooding aspect or destruction of the community, right? And the rebuilding. So I definitely see different levels of engagement when it comes to our our partners who are preparing in a way that sets themselves and their communities up for success, Um, understanding who the right partners are. A lot of the times when it comes to working with our partners, and again, the listeners, I think, are, are a part of that partner conversation, is we often don't realize we should be working with folks and bringing them to the table 
until the disaster actually happens. And one of the biggest things I, my team, and the company really advocate for for our clients is to say, start bringing these people to the table now, during your planning process, during your trainings, during your exercises, during uh, your, your program assessments that you're doing, because the disaster and emergency preferably is not the first time you wanna meet this person. As human beings, we will always have conflict. We will always communicate in ways that we will never understand each other. No matter how hard we try, there's just going to be opportunities where between two people, three people, five people, 15 people, we may be communicating information and not understanding it. The disaster is not the time to be working out those nuances of personalities, of communication styles, on how do we want to relay situation, uh, situational information. Um, we want to do that ahead of time so that we know what works best. Um, the best the best way I can describe that is you never want to marry someone on the first day you meet them, is my opinion. You do, that's fantastic. But the preference is you want to date them for a while, right? As that level of seriousness goes, because you learn who they are, how they communicate, um, how they receive information, um, how how they listen or don't. Um, and so I think that's the same thing, right, with any relationship you build. And it can be incredibly frustrating, I think, also for people who are out there who might have that mindset, that preparedness mindset. They, they know something could happen, but they haven't been hit right? Um, yeah. Whether it's wildfires, earthquakes, right? Earthquake is huge um, because we don't get that very often. Um, but with the with the hurricanes, with, um, and I'll talk about the pandemic in a second, but when you have someone especially who, who just knows it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, how do you sell that? And I don't mean sell from a consulting side, right? But how do you get the buy-in? How do you get not only your leadership, your colleagues, your subordinate staff, your community members to understand we have to be prepared? Because if and when it happens, if you're not prepared, all the disasters that cause a lot of havoc are going to cause havoc here. And it's very hard to prove or disprove a negative, right? Like, how do you prove your preparedness works if it never happens to prove it, right? Yeah, Stephanie, um, really good insights there. I just recently recorded a podcast with Hank Hottie. He's the sustainability and resiliency coordinator for Pinellas County, Florida, in the Tampa St. Pete area. And his advice was for residents to sign up for that emergency management newsletter, go to city council meetings, be engaged and develop those relationships before there's even a disaster on the horizon. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about that people can maybe yes. be more engaged and go to those hurricane preparedness meetings and have those relationships develop before there's even a storm or a disaster? Yes, 100%. Go develop those relationships. And even more so, understand how the professionals do it, right? Um, and it's not to say that people won't question or won't um, say, oh, things weren't done right, or you didn't communicate well, or you didn't give us the information. It's not that. But I think the more uh, the community and and people get involved and understand and participate, they'll have a better understanding about how things are done. 
it's much like we offer law enforcement academies for citizens and residents, right? A citizen's academy so that they can understand the law enforcement side of things. Um, and it's very similar to emergency management. There's opportunities throughout the country that uh, residents or citizens can get involved with emergency management and they can volunteer. Um, they can volunteer for exercises to be victims or role players. They can also serve on committees that the jurisdiction or municipality might have. Um, there's a lot of locations that have local emergency preparedness committees or councils um, that are funded that help influence what that municipality does when it comes to emergency management. So absolutely, I agree 100%. The more involvement and engagement that we can all do together to understand each other and understand how and why, the better prepared inherently I think we're going to be. One last comment about what Bill Reed said about in the Caribbean, them shutting off the power before the storm hits. I was in South Louisiana in 2020 for Hurricanes Laura and Delta. And the day after Delta, I walked into a grocery store in Lake Arthur, Louisiana. They had hurricane force winds less than 24 hours before. Cell phone towers were down. The power grid was down. And this grocery store was fully operational. I went in, the the, the doors open, everything was, was working. People were in there buying groceries. And I said, do you mind if I ask, how are you operating? And they said, six weeks ago in Lara, we lost power and we lost a lot of our groceries. They said, this time we learned our lesson. Before the storm even arrived, we cut that power. We went to generator. I thought, these people are so well prepared. They, they learned from their mistakes six weeks ago. And mm -hmm. I was like, you know, there probably aren't too many communities in America that would have grocery stores up and running 18 hours after a hurricane strike. But there they were doing it. So it was that concept of learning from a mistake and improving their practice. I, have you seen things like that on the ground where people are you know, saying, okay, we made mistakes last time, we're going to improve that next time. Absolutely. Um, and I think this is, again, where our emergency management teams can work with stakeholders to include them if the, in that after action reporting process, because those are things that you want to capture and share. Um, and so for us, when we have a client, let's say, in Louisiana, that speaks to us about that, we then take that information for another client. And, and even if they didn't have that type of, of an event or interaction with we'll use the grocery store as an example, we share that information to say, here's a really good idea, work with your local business community, work with economic development to help spread this message out. And there are federal programs out there and grant programs out there. Um, you know, one of the things we did for a client was help them build throughout the community, throughout the state, local emergency um, energy assurance planning, right? There's grants to do that so that they could work with their communities on identifying areas that needed um, generators, that needed to ensure that they could be up and running. That may not be a priority on the grid. And I think that's a fantastic thing to share, not only with emergency management circles, but with chambers of commerce, right? You wanna share it with the organizations that these businesses are at because Especially during a disaster, one of the biggest things not only the federal government wants, but state governments want and local governments, they want the local community and the businesses to be back up and running. The goal is not to have, yes, the federal government will provide water, food, help with commodities as needed and, and bring them in. But the goal is to have those organizations back up and running so that the community can spend the money there. Um, you know, we can do the food, we can get, get the community back to where it's going. 
And the more prepared that those businesses are, the better. FEMA has great websites for businesses to create continuity plans for themselves. It's called the Business Continuity Plan. And a lot of that information is in there for them. And they can put a simple plan in place on contacts and information and then think through a checklist about if we know a storm is coming at this point, we should cut our power and move to generator power. Do we have enough oil, you know, or fuel to run those generators and for how long and, you know, things like that. So there's a lot of really amazing resources out there to help businesses and the communities prepare. And our resource, we have a resource center at Tidal Basin. Um, you can go to tidalbasingroup.com. So tidalbasingroup.com. We have a hurricane resource center. We have um, a wildfire fire resource center that has a lot of tips and tricks and checklists and takes you to all these different sites as well. Um, but, you know, if somebody wants one place to kind of find something and think about, that's a great place to start. And then it can take you other places. Hey guys, do we have any questions come in online yet? This has been a great discussion. And Stephanie, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. This has been awesome. I love it. So much fun. <laughs> Yes, we've got uh, one question that uh, came online just a few minutes ago, and it goes back to what can uh, the communities do, and uh, the question basically is, what if, what if we have some students here that are like under the age of 16? What can they do to get involved or to begin to learn more about what you do, Stephanie? So there's a few things. Um, one is find internships or find volunteering opportunities. If emergency management is something um, that a student is interested in, hook them up with the local fire department, police department, emergency management, have them participate in exercises. So there's a lot of organizations that do emergency drills or exercises on a regular basis. Um, and they will allow children, you know, under 18 to participate with parent, you know, with a parent there and parent sign off. Um, if they're involved in Cub Scouts, um, or scouts or brownies or any sort of like civic organization like that there's also opportunities to bring in speakers i spoke to a friend's uh, son's cub scouts actually virtually it was during the pandemic um where i they all the cub scouts with their uniforms they were so wonderful um, and we talked about how they could prepare um, and it, it's something that as teenagers as we start to figure out what we want to do as we continue to grow up, and I think many of us choose lots of different things, um, you know, start reading books. Um, there are some really great easy books out there that you can read that are about disasters or about emergency management. And if it's something that you think you want to get involved with, go to the community college nearby and see if they offer an emergency management course that you could audit to see if it's something you want to participate in. Watch podcasts like this, right? Or listen to podcasts like this or find other things to listen and educate yourself about. I think the other thing too is, um, you know, we want to ensure that our schools are prepared. I know when I went to school, I lived in Southern California. Earthquakes was our, our biggest threat. Um, and we conducted exercises on an annual basis for earthquakes. And I remember, I think I was in the third grade and I was selected to be the victim that remained in the classroom. I was so excited. <laughs> I think that's probably what got me started. Um, and I got to, after everybody evacuated out of the classroom, they shut the lights off. I got to stay in there so that the rescuers could come find me and carry me out. Um, and so let's not be scared about introducing any age of, of children um, to 
disasters and emergencies um, at, in the appropriate language, right? Every child developmental age has an appropriate language to speak to them about things. But there's so many activities to do with them. And then through that, children are the best ones to then go home and nag their parents about creating a family plan and creating a kit and creating an evacuation plan. If there's a, a fire in the house, mom, dad, where do we meet? Who do we call, right? What if the cell phones get lost? Who knows phone numbers, right? So I think um, for getting individuals involved, we want to make sure it's done within the schools, that we offer opportunities for them to attend courses, um, listen to podcasts or, or watch uh, shows about it, um, as well as get involved in volunteering opportunities to participate. Excellent answer there. Uh, as a broadcaster, as most of us are, are listening here, are, are broadcasters all in the hurricane community, beyond knowing who our EM is, what can we do to help promote what you do to the community? I would say at any opportunity that you all have when you get together, bring in emergency managers, bring in police and fire, bring in public safety to talk to you all, um, to chat, to have conversations, much like we're doing now, um, on questions you have, because there is going to be a different, what we call sometimes a flavor of the day when it comes to disasters, right? It could be hurricanes because of hurricane season. It could be wildfires. Over the last two years, it's been the pandemic. And bring us in to talk, have coffee talks with us, have presentations, um, you know, for you, attend events um, that, that deal with emergency management or bring us in to your events, conferences, um, where we can speak about, it. have us on your broadcasts so that we can promote and, and help support that drumbeat, not only of what you do with providing that information for the public, um, but then also integrating and, and letting people see that it's a team, right? That we're all a part of that team. I think the most impactful thing that many of us see when it comes to an emergency or a disaster is usually that broadcast, right? That, that, uh, a wall of people that tend to do a, a press briefing and it is most impactful when you see the different uniforms up there the different experts up there and they talk specific to what their knowledge base is but they are all a team and i think that is what we can do to help promote not only emergency management, but the um, meteorological aspect of things when it comes to the hurricanes and preparedness um, for that. And especially with the pandemic, you know, there's a lot of things with COVID that we as a community are having to reassess and readdress because we can't do things the same anymore. And I, I don't think a lot of people want to do things the same anymore um, as a result of it. So I think those are some things we can do. Sounds good. All right, guys, uh, you have any more questions? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been jotting <laughs> to some of the ones that it, it dawned on me when I was thinking about this. The, uh, a lot of people, most people don't realize that uh, the head of emergency management uh, is not your emergency manager. It's your elected official. In Texas, it's the county judge for unincorporated yeah. and the mayors of the cities. And they've done a great job in the last couple decades of when the, when, the, when the elected officials are up there, they make sure they have right at right at their side the emergency management director to uh, answer the detailed questions. They're smart to know that that they that, you know they're the voice for the 
uh, in general for the public, but they, they have the expertise on board with them. And do you, do you see the the uh, the uh, much much increased professionalism of the emergency management line of work over the last uh, two decades has played a role in that? I do. Um, I really do. So for a few reasons. One, because I think many of us, I came in in the last two decades, we have a lot of field experience, which is what you want, right? You, you want to be able to have these experiences that you've been through it, made your mistakes, had your successes, and you've been through it. But there's also a lot of educational programs out there, degrees, that are creating the new emergency manager. And we want to have both. One, you can't exist without the other. Um, I think the field of emergency management came up a lot right from, um, from the 50s and, and from a lot of things that we dealt with then and then progressed with police and fire into the 70s and making sure that uh, you know our public safety folks, especially fire, could talk amongst jurisdictions across agencies. Um, and so they created a lot of things that standardized principles and concepts and equipment and terminology. And then as it continued to grow through the 80s and the 90s, 2000s, and then even to this day, we have a lot of people who I think are looking at emergency management as the ability to programmatically organize chaos. It's really what it should be coming down to. I mean, I am I am probably one of the most organized people you were, will ever meet, ever. And yet I cannot stop chaos from happening. So the skill sets that I have developed as an emergency manager help me organize in certain aspects what that chaos is. And one of the best ways to do that is to teach, to teach our upcoming generations how to do that. And we want to make sure also that we're getting the message out and teaching these concepts to women, to people of color, right? That we have diversity, that we have equity, we, we are including everyone. We're speaking to the young boys, the young girls who want to be in this field and help them understand it is a profession. And I think with COVID, we saw this very clearly because although it was a health emergency, in many organizations, the emergency manager really became the principal in charge um, because they helped organize. It didn't mean that the health departments weren't in charge of the operational aspect or response, but that they, as the emergency manager, helped coordinate because there was commodity issues, right? We had a lot of organizations that dealt with school uh, issues, schools shutting down and food instability for the children, right? That might be the only place a child could get their meals during the day. So you're dealing with COVID, but you also have a community that can't eat. So that's not necessarily a health emergency, but somebody needs to be there to help manage it and organize it and, and get data in and information in and put information and data out so that people can make in, uh, informed decisions. And those elected officials can be part of the solution to make appropriate decisions based on that information. And so I see a lot of programs that are out there that are, are helping to professionalize our profession. We have a lot of emergency managers who are out there that are creating codes of conduct, code of ethics um, within our 
organization. So we have the International Association of Emergency Managers, um, which many of us all belong to. We have what's called a certified emergency management credential. So I am a certified emergency manager. Um, and so we're really taking a lot of nice opportunities, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, to say, this isn't an other duty as assigned if you can afford that, right? Not every municipality can afford Mm-hmm. time, people, money to have a separate emergency manager. But it doesn't mean that those people still can't go get that experience and education to have it professionalized within that municipality. That's right. The, the function doesn't go away just because it's a nope. thousand people instead of a million. Yep. Uh, I, I have one other question that I'd like to ask you, and then I'll pass it back to Alex and Hal, see if they got a closing one. If you could be the FEMA administrator, what would be your number one priority today? Oh, that's a tough one. So I actually used to work for Administrator Chris, Chris Well when I was at FEMA. She was amazing. Um, so I don't know if I want her job. <laughs> however, however, if if I was the oh, oh, see that's a tough one, and I'm being recorded, so I don't know if I answer this. However, um, if 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 I was looking at priorities, I would say the the biggest thing is to help get technical assistance out to the locals, Um, you know, help make life easier at the local level, which includes education, which includes uh, grant funding, which includes um, providing those who have the technical expertise to provide technical assistance because pretty much every disaster, if not all disasters, start at the local level. And the, the better prepared we can make our local communities, again, across the country, and the majority of our communities are rural, we are better prepared as a county, as a region, as a state, and then nationally to not be as impacted um, physically with our structures and then also financially. I mean, we see these disasters, these major disasters that hit the costs right, of rebuilding and the impacts, the impacts of the financial aspects are just devastating. Um, and so for me, I think my biggest priority would be to figure out how to continue to make it easier at our local level for them to have all the tools and resources they need to be successful. I come from a county, so I come from a local level um, and I come from local public safety. And that's where we have the biggest impact in our communities, helping the residents, the visitors, be prepared, um, but we need those tools and resources to do it. And I think we need to feel empowered to do that. So it's not just money. It's not just time. It's not just people. It's not just equipment. There's there's a whole comprehensive sort of plan that needs to happen, especially at the local level, to ensure that our communities feel empowered to be prepared, to respond appropriately, to mitigate for future disasters to recover from them. And that'll ultimately build, I think, um, a sense of resiliency and the ability to be resilient when something happens. I mean, we're gonna have adversity. We're, We're going to have disasters, but how do we ensure that we feel empowered and we are empowered to be more resilient the next time it comes? That's a good priority. I think a lot of the locals would salute it. 
<laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Great questions, everyone. I have one last question here before I hop on a plane. Stephanie, for the young professionals out there, the students out there that want to network, get more involved, are there state emergency management meetings? Is there a national meeting every year? I know with like planning, sometimes there are regional planning commissions where a couple counties or parishes will get together. I mean, what would you recommend for, say, local, regional, or national meetings that a young professional could get involved with? Yes, um, there are state meetings and there are national meetings, and often they have student chapters. So I would recommend to students, um, especially if they're in an emergency management program, they should be able to figure it out or find it out from their professors or from um, that school or program. But even if they're not, a simple Google of your state emergency management association, and they will have regular meetings. Um, they do have an annual, usually in-person type of meeting for the national uh, organization, the International Association of Emergency Managers. Our next meeting is in Savannah in November. So it rotates and it's typically between October and November. So this year it's in November, about middle November. And a, we have a student chapter for IAEM. There's also the same organization internationally. So we have Canada, we have Asia, um, you know, we have all these other aspects of that same organization. So it's not just US based. We can have people, obviously, from all over the world not only attend but participate in those other organizations. And I would say for students, that's probably the best way to network and get to know the people that are doing what you want to do because, especially within emergency management, there are so many nuances. Do you want to predominantly work in mitigation? Do you want to work with private sector? Do you want to deal with recovery and the financial aspects? Do you want to deal with the preparedness? Do you only want to be in the field or responding? Do you want to do it all? And what I've learned through my career is I've had many, many jobs. Uh, that's just the nature of how I did it. So I could do other things and new things and get lots of experiences. But it helped me understand what, what I was good at, areas that I wanted to improve upon. So I took jobs that maybe I didn't feel so confident in so I could learn about it. And see if it was something I enjoyed or say, okay, I did not enjoy that aspect. I don't need to do that anymore, but I've developed some skill sets, right? Um, and, it, and it'll help, I think, students understand where they want their career to go. And it doesn't have to be linear. I don't think really anyone's career in this day and age is linear. Mine sure wasn't. Um, but, you know, I think those are some organizations and meetings that they can participate in. Great. Alex, any last words? There was one last question that came in from the group, uh, and it was, what would be some best practices to reach the lower-income community members? How would we reach them with the information that they need to know? Yeah, so, you know, I would say that there's, there's a big charge right now, and we see it a lot, with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's not only socioeconomic, or economic or financial, but it also deals with access to tools and resources, right? Um, and so it could be people who can't financially afford internet, but it could also be people who are in areas that there is no internet to begin with, no matter kind of how much, you know, if they're able to afford it or not. So I would say not only as broadcasters, but as emergency managers, we want to get information out in multiple means and methods and don't lose sight of, of paper, right? We want to make sure that we're sharing information at libraries, at schools, um, at community and civic organizations, at 
at um, place at houses of worship, right? Getting information out and building those relationships because when a disaster happens, those are the areas, locations, and community members that need to trust you and need to trust what you're saying. We saw this a lot with COVID, um, you know, and, and especially too, think, think about this, right? You have COVID and you have a hurricane coming, right? So now you're talking to people about multiple things. Go to a shelter, but there's not so many people that can go now, or you need to shelter in place because we're not gonna be able to put people together because of the pandemic, right? And so now you have different kinds of information that needs to get out there. And especially for folks who are maybe of lower income, who maybe the only way they got information was at school with their kids because that's where the internet was. And now kids aren't going to school or they're getting their laptops, but they don't have the internet, right? So we wanna make sure that we as community members understand different ways to get the messaging out because power can go out internet can go out so even if we don't have economic reasons why we can't access certain things we want to make sure we're always able to communicate and communicate the message in a way that everyone understands it whether it's different languages right uh, we we want to have an understanding about what languages are spoken in our communities um, and then we also want to make sure we understand for those who are maybe financially insecure or don't have the ability economically to afford certain things how do they get their information? Is it the local corner store? Is it the library? Is it the house of worship? Is it the YMCA, right? Or places where kids go. Um, and so I think we have to do our work on the preparedness side to understand how our people are receiving information um, and receiving things, even if it's commodities, so that we can get it out there for them should they need it. Great. All right, uh, that's all the questions we have here, uh, Bill. Okay, well, Stephanie, it's been great having you on our show today, and uh, uh, hopefully you won't uh, have a big hurricane pounding Wilmington in the last uh, six weeks or so of the season. Uh, our next show will be October 5th. Uh, Alan Strum, Brian Norcross, Rob Perillo, calm in the storm, keeping the message truthful and factual. So thanks for being with us today, and we'll uh, keep you apprised of what's going on next week. All right. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? Well, well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.